Welcome to this week's episode of Atlantic Tales, when we travel to Milton Malbay to meet best-selling author and retired school teacher Roisin Meany. Roisin Meany is a retired school teacher who left and returned to teaching more than once. Born in Listowel, County Kerry, the Meanies moved to Tipperary when Roisin was just six months old. The family later relocated to Limerick, where her 95-year-old mum, Rose, still lives. Roisin's first foray into writing was at the age of 18, when a simple sentence won her a brand new car. Another competition years later would change her life. Roisin now lives in Milton Malbay, in the county where her parents were born. Mam was from the village of Kildysert in County Clare and Dad hailed from a little townland about four miles from Kildysert called Lavalla and it was in the parish of Ballycorrick so the nearest church was Ballycorrick Church and they met at the local dance. Mam was the daughter of the butcher in Kildysert, uh, Patrick O'Grady and um, he, uh, he, I remember him as a twinkly-eyed grandpa, although apparently he was a very strict father, she told me. And the threat from Granny would be, wait till your father gets home. Yeah. And they would be put into some room to wait until he gets home. And Mam said she can remember grandpa breaking up a crate, a wooden crate, to give a wallop to whoever had blotted their copybook. Poor old grandpa, poor old children, I should say. <laughs> uh, spare the rod and spoil the child was alive and well in Kildysert. But anyway, they met at the dance and then they, in, in due course, they married. Dad, I think, was 29 when they got married and Mam was 27 and she had to give up the teaching. But they started their married life in Kildysert. They rented a little bungalow on the outskirts of Kildysert. Sitka Villa, it's called, actually, and we pass it still every time we go to Kildysert. And um, my only sister, the, their eldest child, was born in Clare, the only one of us to be born in Clare. And Dad was transferred to, oh, he started his working life as a teacher, actually. He started as a primary teacher, like both his parents had been before him. They both taught in the little two-teacher school in Pitfield, which was the local school to Lavalla, where he grew up. And when Dad came to leave school, he, as the eldest son, was kind of expected to carry on the teaching tradition. He didn't really want to. Now, I didn't know this until years later. He never really spoke about it, but he didn't really fancy being a teacher. But he was a dutiful son, and he, he went off to uh, St. Pat's in Dublin and got his qualification and became a teacher. And he worked in Lack School. I know that was one of the schools he worked in, in rural County Clare. I'm quite, I think in between Lavalla and Kildysert, actually. And I, I know roughly where it is. It's up beyond Ballycorrick, if, if people know Kildysert. So Dad, anyway, as soon as he could, because he wasn't, he didn't feel he was a natural teacher, he decided that he would become an inspector. So he did a degree by night, a BA, to become an inspector. He did it in Galway, I think, from Galway College. Um, and he became an inspector. But actually, uh, uh, just a little amusing sideline. Before he became an inspector, while he was still a teacher, his father retired as the principal of Pitfield School, where his wife, Granny, was also teaching. Dad went for his job and got it. So he became his mother's boss, in effect. Now, okay. I'm presuming it was in name only. I don't know. Granny was a very gentle soul, so maybe she gave him full reign. But I don't think Dad would have laid down the law, knowing Dad too, you know. I don't think he would. I, hopefully That's they lovely. got on all right. Yeah. But, but not long after that, he became an inspector. So then he was moved as inspector to his first post 
in North Kerry of which Listowel would have been the main town. And they actually rented another house in Ballybunion, so they weren't living in Listowel, but Mam went to Listowel to have my older brother and then me. Um, there was a nursing home in Listowel called Greenlawn, which is long gone. But uh, So we were both born in Listowel, but then Dad developed um, a, a, some kind of thing in his lung. I don't think it was TB. As far as I know, it wasn't TB, because I'm sure he would have been quarantined and whatever if it had been. But he was just uh, told, you know, go away from the sea. So he was moved to Tipperary at that stage. Yeah, but we, Dad's family home, because he was the eldest son, he, he inherited it when his parents died. It was our holiday home. So we spent all our summers as children in the wilds of West Clare and we absolutely loved it. And we would go from Lavalla to Kildysert with my mother driving us. Mam couldn't drive. She had been taught by an uncle of hers who also, I think, couldn't drive because she hadn't a clue. She would grind the gears and if a car came towards us on those narrow country roads, she would pretty much go into the ditch to avoid it. And we, even as young children, were petrified. Thanks be to God, she only ever drove from Kildicer to, <laughs> to Lavella and back again. Um, but we would go to visit Granny and Grandpa in Kildicer and any other re relatives who were there. There were a lot of relatives. At a very young age, you left Kerry. Dad was a school inspector. Mum was a teacher. She was a teacher before she got married, but of course the marriage ban was in place, so she had to give up once she got married to Mr. Meany. So uh, she only taught for, well, she got married at the age of 27, I think, so she would have taught for about seven years. And you followed in her footsteps? I followed in her footsteps, yeah, 20 odd years after that. Well, actually more than that, because she had two children before me. So I did follow her into Mary Eye about 30 years after she had entered the, its hallowed halls. And uh, we both became primary teachers in our, in our day. You don't remember much, of course, about Listowel, but do you remember much about Tipperary? I do. I remember Tipperary well enough. I was eight when we moved out at Tip. Dad was transferred again, and this time we went to Limerick. But I remember a bungalow about... Now, it felt a long way from the school. I went to the Mercy Convent. It felt a long way. We walked to school, myself and my sister, and it felt like miles, but I think it was about a mile which was, I suppose, a long enough walk for a young <laughs> child at the time, or maybe even half a mile. But yeah, I, I vaguely remember that there was a long corridor in the house and we had the habit of catching our ankles and pulling each other along the corridor. And um, I, I developed a, a sore hip out of that. <laughs> at least I blamed that. And my mother had to bring me to the doctor and the doctor prescribed Zambuck ointment that she rubbed on. And years later, in fact, only a few years ago, I discovered that my hip was gammy from when I was born. I have this thing called hip dysplasia, which now is tested. Babies are tested for it and it's, it's easily fixed. It's the socket. The ball isn't sitting right in the socket, basically. But no, there was no test there when Roisin Meany was born. So I had it all my life and it wasn't the corridor I was to blame at all. <laughs> so apart from the blagarding and messing with your sister and getting dragged up and down the corridor, in school were you interested in English or reading or oh, writing Pat. or what? I'm embarrassed to tell you this bit. My sister came first. She was the, she was the eldest. Um, and then there was a boy and then there was me and then there were four more boys. But when it came to me following in Trass's footsteps in Laurel Hill in, in Limerick, 
they couldn't believe I was her sister. She was the student and I was the messer, <laughs> really. I, I didn't do a tap at school that I didn't have to do. I was lucky, I suppose, that I had enough brain in me that I managed to get by on the tap I did and get into Mary Eye as well. I don't know how I managed that. But um, yeah, no, I, I wasn't really a student. But English was, for what it was worth, it was my favourite subject always. Yeah. And reading growing up? Reading, an avid reader, an avid reader. And, and it stood to me when I was 18 and just about to go into Mary Eye and I was having breakfast one morning and I was eating cornflakes and I was reading the back of the cornflakes box because I had nothing else around me to read and they were having a competition to, to win one of six Ford Fiestas. It was the year the Fiesta was being introduced into Ireland and I entered because you had to be 18 or over so it was the first time I could enter a grown-up competition like that and I won a Ford Fiesta and <laughs> all I had to do was write seven words to finish a sentence. I would like to win a Ford Fiesta because and now you're probably wondering what my sentence was because my father won't let me drive his that was that would you believe won me a car and then I thought gosh seven words I wrote seven words and I got a car there's something in this writing lark <laughs> so I became addicted to competitions and I entered loads of other ones and I won lots of other things over the years and that's what ultimately ultimately led me to um, being a writer but there were other things in between how soon after that competition did you actually put pen to paper to write seriously or did some time elapse Sometime definitely elapsed, yeah, years elapsed. I went into Mary Eye as planned and uh, I kept entering the competitions. Three years passed, I was qualified as a teacher. I got a job in Dublin, in Tala, my first job. And then after that, I, uh, I worked for two years when you had to have your two-year probationary period then to be deemed a fully qualified teacher. So I got that and then I promptly resigned from my teaching job because there was no career break. And you could either leave your job or you could stay put. And I decided I wanted to see a bit of the world. So I said, I'm going. My parents were horrified, especially my uh, inspector father threw up his hands in horror. You are giving up your permanent pensionable job. And my mother wasn't much better now, to be honest. Um, but I, I was determined. So I did. And this now was the early 80s. This was 82 when we were having our one of our big recessions. I, uh, I went off to Zimbabwe and I taught English there. I, I was in a high school and I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't trained to be a high school teacher, but I read a few pages beyond them in the textbook every day and I kind of bluffed my way through it for two years and I loved it out there. It was a great country. So then I came back to Ireland after two years. This was 84. I, I as luck would have it, a job came up in my old school in Tala and I applied again and I was taken in again. So I had the last laugh of my parents thinking that I had burned my teaching bridges forever. So I went back into that school and I taught there for another five years and then I decided I wanted to go again. I, I got itchy feet but now the career break had been invented so I applied for a career break and this time I wanted to do something other than teaching and my cousin one of my cousins said you're always entering these competitions and you you have a knack with words so you should look for a job in advertising it would never have occurred to me only he said that never so I duly looked for a job in advertising in Dublin I got a few freelance gigs which I was delighted about uh, I, I blagged my way in I don't know how they took me on really with no experience and nothing to show only a few companies petition prizes but they they must have liked what I saw I made up a kind of homemade portfolio and I did a few until the Christmas of 89 and then I decided that I, I had there was no security going with that and I had, was getting no money from teaching because I was on a career break so I thought I better do something else so I went to London 
with my homemade portfolio, plus the few little lads that I had produced in Dublin. And, and again, um, I, I was incredibly lucky that some agency was kind enough to take me in as a copywriter. And I worked in that job for three years and I came back to Ireland and went back into teaching, but the seed was sown then. Now this is like, what, 10, 15 years after I had won the car. So to answer that previous yeah. question, a long time, time passed, a long time passed, yeah. You were saying dad was maybe not under pressure, but it was expected of him that he'd become a teacher. Yes. Was it expected of you that you'd become a teacher? Not at all. That was my choice and I, I, I thought I was in the perfect job and I loved it. I loved teaching. No, there was no pressure put on any of us to do anything really. My sister, who was the brainy one, she went to NIHE as it was at the time, which is now UL, um, and she studied European studies. Uh, she learned languages. She had a thing for languages. I think she, she speaks about six or seven of them now. Uh, I think she was, she was one of the few people to study Russian for her Leaving Cert, and she got a scholarship on foot at the Leaving Cert because she was such a swat and so brainy, and that paid for her third level education. And then my brother, my older brother who came along was also brainy and also a SWAT and he got a scholarship. Actually he got a scholarship to Rockwell Secondary School. I don't know what kind Not of scholarship think. it could have been yeah. but he got something that paid for because my parents couldn't have afforded to send him to Rockwell. And then he got another scholarship that, that sent him to UCD and he studied uh, agricultural science. But, and then I came along and my parents said to me, well, you won't be getting a scholarship. Yeah. We'll be paying for you. <laughs> and then I won the car. So I sold the car and that paid for my three years in Mary Eye. And I had enough money left over at the end of it to buy a banger. So I did very well out of the car and I had the last laugh on my parents. <laughs> The trip to Zimbabwe, how did that come about? What put Zimbabwe at all in your mind? Zimbabwe could have been anywhere, Pat. I was just keen to see the world and I didn't really care where I went. I had never been out of Ireland. I had been to Germany once. I think it was the summer after I did my junior cert or my inter cert as it was at the time. My sister was going to Germany for the summer to visit her pen friend who lived in Zollingen in Germany. And I said, can I come too? And she said, you can. So the two of us went over and stayed with her pen friend's family for a few weeks in Germany and that was the extent of my travels really before I decided I wanted to leave teaching and see a bit of the world. So I did the first interview that came along, I went through APSO, Agency for Personal Service Overseas, and they were doing interviews for Zimbabwe which had recently become independent and which now was looking for lots and lots of teachers to educate the people who previously hadn't had access to education, which was the indigenous population. So I went out as a high school teacher um, with only my primary school qualification but as I say they were desperate for teachers and they were taking anyone with any kind of teaching degree so I was teaching in a big school in the suburbs of Harare um, I got the bus out every day the suburb actually was called Glenora which was so yeah. Irish sounding, wasn't it? Like Maloney in Italy. I always think she sounds so Irish, that, that Prime Minister. Yeah, Glenora. So I got my bus out from Harare every day to Glenora. And it was a big, big school. There were, I don't know how many classes. It, it taught children from about 12 to 18. And a lot of those children had been boy soldiers in the war of independence. 
So imagine they had been out fighting and putting their lives out there and now they were sitting in a classroom. I just thought, God, what lives they, they've lived, you know. But they were so lovely, the children I was teaching, they were just so lovely and there was no discipline problem at all. And there were big classes. Now I had probably 40 in a class, but there was no problem, you know. And we just went through the textbook. Like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't trained to do uh, high school teaching, but I did the best I could. And I think I taught them how to speak with an Irish accent. <laughs> so that's, that was nice. Um, yeah, and, and actually getting the bus was very interesting. I was usually the only white person on the bus, but nobody took a blind bit of notice of me. And there were loads of people in there with little boxes of chickens. And, and I think there was a goat on yeah. the bus one day. And uh, Were you aware of the history of Zimbabwe before you went out there? Not really, but I, I acquainted myself with it um, as soon as I heard that I had got the job. And I, I actually had to look it up on the map when I went home from the interview because I hadn't a clue. I knew it was Africa, but that was all. I didn't know what part of Africa. So I found it and I thought, oh, that's where I'm going to be working now for two years. Then I, I read up a bit on it. All right. Yeah, it's very similar to Irish, really, you know, to Ireland, really, in that the, there was a lot of fighting and bloodshed and, you know, colonialism and that. So, yeah, but I loved and it. did that not put you off a small bit? And how did... Oh, my dad react to it. I know you said your dad threw his arms in the air when you left teaching in the first place, but going out to Zimbabwe with its history, how did they react to that? They, do you know, I don't remember them being nervous at all at the prospect of my going out there. I think because they knew I was going with a big group. There were about, there were 50 odd teachers going from Ireland and the UK combined. We got, a, the Irish people got a flight to London and then we met up with the UK people going out. And there was a huge group of us heading out there and we were working for the government. So it was, they figured it was as safe as you know it gets and and the war was over it had been declared an independent country so i suppose they figured that its troubled past was its troubled past and i never saw anything you know when i was there for the two years i never saw anything to make me in the slightest bit nervous you know people were lovely really lovely people coming up we'll be back in milltown malbay to hear more about the travels and writings of author roisin meany and how she left teaching to pursue a career as a writer Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. Today we're in lovely Milton Malbay with author and retired school teacher Roisin Meany. Roisin had always wanted to see the world and took a break from her teaching job in Ireland and travelled to Zimbabwe where she taught in a high school. She spent some time in the US and also worked in London before returning to her teaching job in Dublin. But by then, the writing seed had been planted and was beginning to germinate. I decided that I had enough of teaching in Dublin and I got a job in a Limerick school. So now I was back in Limerick where a lot of my friends who I'd been with in Mary I had settled and got married, some of them, and some of them were just teaching there and that was great. And my parents were still in Limerick too, so that was nice too. Um, and I, um, because the seed had been sown, I decided I had to keep my hand in writing in some way. I still wasn't really thinking in terms of writing a book. Well, it was kind of vaguely in my head, but I didn't do anything concrete about it. But I did contact the INTO, who brought out their member magazine every month for all the primary teachers in Ireland, In Touch it was called. And I asked them, would they like a, a column, a regular column about the joys of teaching infants, which I was doing at the time. And they said, sure. And they gave me a few bob for it. So that was lovely. I wrote about 800 to 1,000 words every month of, you know, kind of just very lighthearted 
stuff about teaching infants and the things they said and the things they yeah. did and, <laughs> and how wonderful and frustrating and everything else that they were. Um, and so I did that for a few years um, and then I decided, yeah, I did kind of want to try writing a book. It had been sitting in my head and it was getting a little bit louder in my head. Yeah. And I decided, okay, I'll give it a go. Now at this stage, this is 2001. So I had been writing in the in, in Touch magazine for about seven years at the time. And everyone knew the column, anyone who bothered to read the magazine, that is. So in my last column, I said, I'm taking a career break and I'm going off to write a book. Another career break. Yeah. And, uh, my second career break, yes. And I decided that I had to tell all the primary teachers in Ireland so that I'd have to write the book. It would put that pressure on me. And I told all my friends as well. And uh, I took a career break and I went off to San Francisco where one of my brothers was living very conveniently. And he had a house, a big house, and he wasn't married, he had no family. So I moved in with him. He was one of my younger brothers. So he was used to his big sister bossing him around. He had no say in the matter. So I said, I'm coming over for a year and I'm going to be writing a book. And he said, fine. Knew there was no use in protesting. So I went to San Francisco and I discovered yoga. And I went with my brand new laptop under my arm. And I, when I wasn't doing yoga, I was writing. And I, oh, before I went there, I decided I'd better do some prep because I had to clue how to write a novel. I knew how to read them and I was always reading them, but I just didn't know how, where you start, literally. So I did a weekend course out in Killaloo given by a man called David Rice. And he, he gave a course called Getting Started on Your Novel. And it, I thought it was wonderful, very practical course. And, and there were about 15 of us. And it only went, it only ran from Friday evening to Sunday afternoon. But he just told us all the practical stuff that you need to know about writing a novel, how to lay out your page, how to get an agent, how to plot a book, how to create a character. And, and I armed with all of this stuff, I took my flight to San Francisco and I started to write. And every day I wrote until I was tired of writing, basically. And that might be one hour one day, and it might be five hours another day. I didn't put any pressure on myself. I just wrote when it felt good, and, and gradually the story unfolded. And then after about six months, I thought, I think I've come to the end of it. I was using the plot that I had kind of made up in David's workshop, and I felt that it was there. So at that stage, I thought, what do I do now? While I was still writing this book, a friend of mine in Limerick, Judy Curtin, who, whom I knew because I had taught two of her daughters, and also Judy sometimes subbed in my school, she was a, a trained teacher, um, she emailed me out of the blue to say, guess what, I've had a novel accepted for publication. I didn't even know she was writing a novel. Unlike me, who told yeah. everyone she knew, <laughs> Judy had told nobody that she was writing a novel. So she said, it's a new publishing company. They were the fiction imprint of Gillan Macmillan, the educational publishers, and they have taken me on and I'm their first author. So I was thrilled for her and now she was my expert. So when I finished my first draft, I emailed Judy to say, what do I do now? Tell me what you did and I'll do the same. And she she said, well, actually, they're running a competition to launch themselves. When I heard competition, <laughs> my ears pricked up. But of course, it wasn't I would like to win a two book publishing deal yeah. because I had to send in my first three chapters, which I duly did. And then the, a couple of months passed and my time in San Francisco was up and I came home and I went back into the classroom. And every so often I would think 
I should really send that manuscript around to different publishers because I didn't really have any great faith that it would win the competition. I thought that would be too good to be true. So I thought maybe I should look for an agent. And while I was still turning all this over in my head, the secretary of the school came down one day after my infants had gone home and when I was um, tidying up the World War II that they had left yeah. behind them, <laughs> uh, she said, there's a, there's a phone call for you in the office. I hadn't a mobile phone at the time. I think I was the last person in Limerick to get a phone. I hated the idea of being contactable 24-7. Yeah. It scared the hell out of me. So I went up to the office and a woman on the other end said, are you sitting down? So I sat down and she said, you have won a two book publishing deal with Tivoli Books. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't. And as it turned out, the book was far from publishable. So she, she took a year with me to, to get it up to, up to standard where they could publish it. But that was fine. I was teaching at the time and I was rewriting in between teaching. And in 2004, I had sent it in in 2002. In 2004, my first book, The Daisy Picker, was published by Tivoli with a big write a bestseller winner flash sticker on the front of it. Now, it didn't actually become a bestseller. <laughs> I, I'm not sure exactly how many copies it sold, but it, it, you know, it sold respectably enough for a first time book by a completely unknown author. Maybe something in the region of 5,000 copies. I have that in my head. And then, of course, I had to write a second book. I thought, oh, my God. Well, I was able to write one, so maybe I'll be able to write a second one. So I tried with hope in my heart. I was still teaching full time at the time. And I decided um, that I would set it in Limerick because the other one was set in a fictitious little village near the sea. This one, I said I'd make my tribute to Limerick because Limerick at the time was getting terrible press. Yeah. Stab city, drugs, blah, blah, blah. Nobody had a good word to say for Limerick. So I thought this will be an antidote to all the bad stuff. So I set it in Limerick and I name-checked my cousins from Ennis um, who had a boutique in, in Limerick, Flax and Bloom. They were Colette and Mary Meany from Ennis and I had a, somebody calling in there to buy something. And then I name-checked a few pubs in Limerick and the North Circular Road and anything I could throw in I did, make, make it as Limerick as I could. And that was published in 2005, the year after The Daisy Picker was out. And then I wrote a third book and my editor in Tivoli was saying, you know, we'll, we'll be delighted to read your third book. Um, I think it was sewn into my contract that they would have first option on it. But as I was coming to the end of the first draft of that book, I got an email from Alison to say, very sorry, but Tivoli is folding. So now I had no publisher. I had a third book written and I had no, no one to publish it. In the meantime, I had acquired an agent. So I said to my agent, what will I do with this book? She said, give it to me. And she went around to all the publishers in Ireland and it was the best thing that ever happened. They all said, no, they didn't want oh, it. <laughs> they did. <laughs> so that brought me down to earth because I thought I was the best thing since James Joyce. You know, I had had no rejections for my first two books and they, they, uh, other, all other writers that I knew were saying, oh, I could paper the bedroom with my rejection slips. So I thought I must be so much better than all of those. So in fact, I wasn't, I was just lucky. My third book went nowhere. So I said to my agent, what will I do now? <laughs> she said, well, you can go back to teaching and you can tell yourself you had two books published, which is a lot more than other people have. And you can forget all about writing or you can try writing another book. So I decided I would. So I went job sharing in teaching to do it right. I said, I'm going to do half teaching and half writing. So I did. And I wrote a fourth book, which was my third, became my third published book. Hotter headline they were at the time. And they decided they liked the look of it. And they gave me a new two book deal. So I was off. And that was published in 2007. So to date, 2006 is the only year that I haven't had a book published. So that's some record that I'm very proud of, really. I don't know and how I did it. There were years 
if I remember rightly, where you've had more than one book published. Oh, Pat, don't remind me. Yeah, I was brain dead after doing that. I did it three times. And each time I said to my editor, please don't ever let me do that again, because really it, it just took everything out of me to do it. And it was great when it happened that I had two books on the shelf, one in the spring and one a Christmas book. But I, I think I won't do that anymore. And I know I said it before, but I think this time <laughs> I won't do it again. When Roisin then did you make the last break from teaching and got out of it completely? In 2008, after I think it was probably three years of job sharing, I decided that, oh, at that stage I had, I think I had three published books and one on the way. One was due to be published. And Hodder Headline, my publishers for the second two books, um, had kind of made it clear to me that they would be interested in reading the next book. And they were a much more settled publisher than Tivoli had been. So I was fairly sure they'd still be there. So I thought I was safe enough and I, I retired from teaching. I took early retirement. I think I had done a sum total of 17 years teaching. My parents threw up their hands in horror once again and I told them to have faith in me that I felt I was going to be okay. And, and touch wood, touch, said she knocking on the kitchen table, I'm okay and hopefully I will be okay into the future. <laughs> that third book that wasn't published, what happens to a book that doesn't get published? Oh, I couldn't bear to let it go for a few years after. It just sat in my laptop. I had set it in Ennis. And again, as a tribute to Ennis, because I had lots of relatives who had started off their lives in, in Kildreistert. In fact, one of my, um, one of my aunts, man's sister, Betty, Betty married Mick O'Dee, the dentist. Now, people listening in, in Ennis will, I'm sure, if they're of a certain age, they will remember Mick O'Dee. He was 48 when he married Betty. Betty was 24. She was his he was her dentist yeah. so um but but they had a very happy marriage um, and betty taught in the kaloshtain and for years that's how people will know her she taught french and maybe some other subjects but french i'm sure of um, so she was there then one a brother of dad's tom meany was in insurance he was a well-known figure around Ennis, a very hail fellow well met great personality very different from dad my father was a very quiet man they couldn't have been more different <laughs> and and i had other cousins in that various cousins floating around Ennis so I knew Ennis very well so I set that third book in Ennis and it sadly never saw the light of day and eventually I pressed delete and I let it go I thought it's not good enough nobody wanted it and I could have gone back into it and tried to fix it I didn't like the thought of that trying to fix something broken I wanted to make new stuff instead so, so I let it go so by 2008 you were on your fourth book to be published yes. in due course and I was writing the fifth so you were gone from teaching and you were very confident teaching. that you could make writing your life and your living. Well, I, I told everyone I was very confident. I was putting a brave face on it, but there were a few friends who kind of said, oh God, giving up teaching. And when I gave up teaching, I gave it up in a pilot scheme that the government was trying out, um, that, which said that if you had worked a minimum of 15 years, you could take early retirement. Now, because you couldn't do that I think you had to have 35 years or something. I'm not sure of the exact figure, but you had to have a lot more years built up before you could actually take early retirement. So, but one of the conditions had to be that you would never be a teacher again. That was written in stone. So I knew I was really burning my bridges here. And I thought, I didn't think too long and hard, maybe a week. <laughs> and then I decided, <laughs> no, that's it. I knew I had to choose one or the other because even when I was job sharing, I didn't have enough time, I felt, to write properly. And 
I felt that I wasn't giving teaching the attention that it really should have as well. So it wasn't working. Job sharing wasn't working for me. So I didn't like the thought of going back into the classroom because I, I liked writing and I did love teaching as well, but I just had to choose. So I, I, picked, I picked writing. You had an agent at that stage. So what was the procedure from there? You just sit down and start writing and hoping for the best? Or were you guided by the agent? Would the agent have known what best to do? Well, the way it worked was I got the deal from Hodder Headline and they gave me a deal for two books. Now, before the second book was published, they came back to me with a new offer for two more books. And that is how it has worked up to then, up to now. So I've been incredibly lucky, really. I'm not being modest when I say that. I'm lucky that I have a publisher with faith in me with enough faith to offer me a new deal even uh, you know while the two books are still in train if you like of the last deal and um, so that's what always happens and and i have had the conversation with my agent and i've got a new agent now i, I switched agents um, uh, several years back just because i wanted an agent based in london this uh, the first agent was in dublin and i felt I might have a better chance of getting a publication deal in, in London and maybe getting a few more translations if I had somebody based there. But I have had the conversation over the years, should I stay with the same publisher in Ireland? And I've always been told yes, because they're growing your profile and, you know, they're doing everything right. And, you know, just I suppose I was getting a bit impatient at times and I would think, you know, I might do better with Penguin or I might do better with a bigger thing. But in fact, Hodder Headline was bought out by Hachette, which is one of the big, if not the biggest publisher in the world. They're a French publishing company. They have uh, publishing houses all over the world. They have several in the UK. They have just one in Ireland, in Castleknock, and it's like a little family now to me. I know them all so well. There are only about 12 people employed there, but they go through, they, they publish, they bring out a good few titles every year, and they're good at what they do. They're very good. So I'm still with them. They're now Hachette. I'm still with them, but the next book, which I'm working on at the moment, and which is due for publication next spring, spring of 25, will be published simultaneously in Ireland and in the UK with another Ashet company, something I've been after for years, so I'm thrilled that it's finally coming to pass. Coming up, Roisin Meany will tell us more about what it takes to be a writer and has some advice for any aspiring authors. Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. Roisin Meany was born in Listole County, Kerry, but both her schoolteacher parents were from Clare. Her father became a school inspector, and when Roisin was just six months old, the family moved to Tipperary before later settling in Limerick. Now living in Milton Malbay, Roisin took early retirement from teaching to concentrate on writing. And while signed up to one of the world's best-known publishing houses, Roisin always felt safer having an agent to help her navigate the literary world. The agent basically negotiates the best publication deal for you and also looks for a publisher if you don't have one, uh, negotiates the deal and also then looks for translations. When I signed all my deals with Ashet, and there have been quite a few now because the book I'm writing on now is I think my 22nd, so that would be my 19th with Ashet, Hodder Headlines slash Ashet. When I sign one of their contracts, I sign away my English language rights 
which was a bone of contention for a while. It meant that I couldn't look for a separate publication deal in the UK because Ashet had all my English language rights. So in all the English language territories, they had the rights. They weren't inclined to sell them to another publisher. They could have, but they didn't. So all I had was foreign language rights. So that's where my agent came in. And my agent goes to the book fairs, the Frankfurt and the London and all the other book fairs. I think there's a big one in Italy and tries to sell my books to foreign publishers. And I have had good success with those two. I'm glad to say I've, I've had so books translated into books a number of languages. Yes, a number of languages. I can list them and I'm not sure if I remember them. I think I have five in Italy. I have, uh, have won in Russia. I, of course, I'm conflicted about that now since the Ukraine invasion. Yeah. I've got one in Poland. There's another one on the way in Slovakia too. One in Poland. I think another one on the way in Poland. I have Norway, a few in Norway, I think three. Denmark took a few. Germany took two. I Occasionally I get emails from people who thankfully write in English <laughs> to me <laughs> saying that they enjoyed one of the books. Yeah, most of my emails though would come from Irish or Engl English readers, you know. But yeah, occasionally I do. And of course then I'll get the royalties from the translations, which is lovely. What do you write about mostly and who do you write for? When I write, and I suppose from the start really I could say that I write for women. I, maybe I wasn't even conscious of that when I started writing my first book but my main characters are always female without exception I do have some male prominent parts and I've had a few male narrators in some of the stories they wouldn't be the only narrator in the story they'd be one of the voices but I think I can see women going for the books more I think it's the type there's a the type of books that women gravitate towards and the majority of the lovely emails I get from people are from women I've had the odd one from men yeah, one man in particular, poor Alez, he died since, but his daughter got in touch with me out of the blue, this is going back several years, to say that she was at the doctor's waiting room once and in the UK. And in the UK, they often have books in the waiting room instead of just magazines. magazines. Yeah. yeah, which I thought was lovely. And she picked up one of mine. And just to give her father something to do, now he was in his 80s at this stage, she passed it on to him. She must have brought it home. Maybe you're allowed to bring them home. I didn't ask. <laughs> and she said he loved it. And I was touched at that. And I wrote back to her. She gave her address. And I said, give me his address and I'll send him an advanced copy of my next book. And I did. And out of that grew a pen friendship uh, between me and Les. And Les now was probably late 80s, I'd say, at this stage. And he went another five or six years. And we wrote, and he wrote these long letters to me, and he told me his life story in them, um, how he had gotten married and he'd been in the army, and I heard the whole shebang. And I felt then obliged to write long letters back to him, yeah. and I was racking my brains trying to think, what else like to try to tell him? But it was lovely, it was really nice, and I was very sad then when he died, poor Adnes, but most of them are, are female. I've written a couple of books for kids. I co-wrote one with the aforementioned Judy Curtin, who was the first author with Tivoli. She started out as an adult author and Tivoli published three of her books and then they folded and her kids were saying, Mom, you never write books for us. So she started writing children's books and basically she's never stopped. And we co-wrote a book. In, I think it came out in 2007. We wrote a book of pen friends and she was one character and I was the other. And basically their stories were linked by the letters that they wrote to 
one another. And it was a very interesting process because we didn't show each other what we were writing in the narratives at all. Sorry, that's my cat just going out the cat flap, if you were wondering what the noise was. (laughs) Um, But we didn't tell each other what we were writing. All we showed each other were were the letters that passed from one character to the other. So it was as if we were real pen friends too. Uh, I didn't know if the letters were true. She didn't know if the letters I was writing to her character were true. And then when we put them together in the end, we found out that a lot of, you know, uh, fairy tales were going on in the letters. Um, But it was lovely. And a year before that, I had written a book about a girl's diary. And I had written that all by myself for the same age group. It was 10 to 13 year olds was the age group. And the O'Brien Press published both of those books. So they're the only two children's books I have except for another one that I was kind of commissioned to write words for that had already been illustrated. Something happened with the person who was doing the words, I can't remember, and I was asked to supply the copy. So all I was doing really was looking at a picture and putting words to it. So I can't honestly say I wrote that book. I feel I didn't really write it. Although it came out, it was a, a rhyming book, and it came out and... Yeah, it, it was fine. I, did, I didn't, I just got paid for the job, so I didn't get any royalties or anything, which was fine. I, like I say, I would have nearly felt guilty getting royalties out of it. Didn't feel like my book. But that was a picture book. I'd love to have more picture books out. I'd love to write for the Smollies. I've submitted a few to my agent, who also handles children's books, but none of them have passed her very stringent standards yet. I live in hope. <laughs> but, and of course, the question that you're often asked, I'm sure, what inspires you? Gosh, that's a good question. I think partly because I'm such a reader. I think if you read a lot of books, well, for me anyway, it happened that eventually I decided that I'd love to try writing a book because all these other people were writing books and I was reading them and getting great enjoyment out of them. And I thought I'd love to have somebody reading my book and getting that kind of enjoyment. And who were you reading, by the way? Oh, God, who wasn't I reading, really? I was reading... Now, the genre, I was very kind of set in my ways genre-wise. I I don't really go for crime much. I I read the odd crime book, but it's not really my thing. My mother loves crime. She loves it. Um, I read kind of um, commercial fiction. I like the family saga. I I like contemporary fiction. So I read people like... um, I loved William Trevor's books. I loved those books. I loved um, Ian McEwan's books. Norman Mailer's short stories, lots of American authors, Anne Tyler, uh, Carol Shields, Anita Shreve, I think Carol Shields was Canadian, Anita Shreve, Annie Prue, um, Kate Atkinson, the Scottish writer, Joanna Trollope, oh my God, so many, so many. Donald Ryan, I absolutely adore. I love his books. Do you still have time to read? Oh God, I'd make time to read, yeah. When I write, I write during the day, I read in the evening. So they they don't, they complement each other. Um, when I'm writing, though, I try and read books by authors I really, really admire, as opposed to taking a chance on a new author. I feel that maybe through osmosis or something, yeah. their expertise will rub off on me when I'm writing. And how often do you write? Because we arranged to meet this afternoon because you were writing this morning. Do you write every day? I write every day when I'm on a first draft, unless something comes up that just prevents me from doing it. But yeah, I do write every day. This morning I did about three hours, I'd say. Of writing and then I had to stop and tidy the house in case you you know needed to <laughs> look around <laughs> but yeah no I do write seven days a week I I like to just keep the flow going and this book that I'm writing the, the deadline is the 22nd of April I'd say I might be two-thirds of the way through but it's a long book so I'll need every day that I have until the 22nd of April really yeah to do justice and to you it. have to walk away 
Roisin from the laptop sometime they just go and clear your head go for a walk yes yeah the walking has to come into the day at some stage too maybe not every day I mean if the storm is raging outside yeah. I'd be sensible and I'd stay inside yeah. but if if the weather is nice now I haven't got time to do it today because I have to go to Limerick after we finish and and bring dinner to my mother you might have noticed the, the slow, slow cooker, cooker working <laughs> away there great. yeah <laughs> the Moroccan beef stew is what's in there we're in um, Milton Malbay you have that strong clear connection but when did you start coming to Milltown? How did that come about? I had a mobile home that I had bought maybe, oh, 15 years ago in uh, Liscanner Mobile Home Park because a few of my friends had mobile homes there and I decided I wanted to, <laughs> to uh, go where they were going. And the plan was that I would be writing in my mobile home by the sea and it would all be lovely. Um, but that didn't work because when I went down there, anyone who was in the park with me was on holidays. So I was the only GOM working they and they were all having fun so I felt very hard done by so that didn't last too long maybe five years I hung on to the mobile home and then I decided no I, I think I'd do better with a house to go to by the sea so at that stage I sold the mobile home I had saved enough I'm good at saving and I had been you know writing steadily really at this stage I had saved enough to be able to afford a house uh, this house in Milton Malbay, which is about 40 minutes walk from Spanish Point Beach, slightly closer to White Strand Beach. Um, and I can drive to Seafield if I'm not feeling energetic enough to walk there. Yeah, and it's lovely. And Milton Malbay, is, it's small, it's quiet, but it's, it's a lovely town. I've met some Everything lovely people here. here. But Everything it I need wasn't here. a permanent move when you bought it first. No, it was my holiday home. And then I felt, <laughs> I'll sound like P. Flynn now when I said the next bit, I'm mortified. <laughs> Three houses, yeah. Yeah, except <laughs> I only have two, honestly. Um, but I did feel that I was a bit head wrecked from trying to keep the two of them working yeah. and, you know, not going damp and making sure that I spent enough time in each house to keep things ticking over and I decided one of them has to go. So I, I thought about that for a bit and then I thought Limerick can go. I'm only an hour from Limerick. Mam is still to the good. She's 95. She'll be 96 in July. She's still in the family home and we'll see how things go. I sold Limerick. I sold it last year and I moved here in April and I've been living here full time since April. So yeah, it's lovely to just have one house to worry about. Having said that, I'm thinking it's a bit small and the storage is very limited. The rooms are all very small. What you're sitting in now is lovely and big because yeah. I extended. But now I'm thinking I might just have to find some place a little bit bigger. Will you stay in Clare? Either Clare or Kerry, I'm thinking. Because Kerry has an attraction for me. I go back to yeah. Listowel every year for Writers' Week and I love it. It's a great little market town, a bustling market town. And it would kind of feel full circle if I ended up somewhere around there. But Claire, I have a great fondness for too. You go back um, to Listowel, of course, the big name that comes out of Listowel, the late, great John B. Keane. Yes. You were gone from Listowel at a very young age, but I'm just trying to imagine what it would have been like for an aspiring writer to grow up in a town and to be able to go into John B. Keynes and probably see him in the flesh as well. I'm so sorry that never that? happened. Yeah. yeah, I did. And would you believe I, I missed him in Writer's Week too because he died, I think maybe the first year I went to Writer's Week, I think he died during, he died during Writer's Week, if you remember. Zero two, he actually, I think, was it? Was it zero two? It could have been. Yeah, and maybe that was when I started or maybe it was the year after. I might have just missed mm -hmm. him. Um, but I, I actually interviewed Mary Keane, his widow, um, on the 
40th anniversary of Writers Week, I was asked to write an article for the Examiner. And I had a great time writing that article. But yeah, I would have loved to grow up in Listowel. Having said that, I can't complain about the upbringing I had. Tipperary was lovely. Limerick was lovely. We've mentioned your mum, Rose, several Rose. times. Yes. You were both honoured together at Mary Immaculate, I think, in 2019. Yes, Both, of course, alumni as well. Yeah, that yeah. must have been a very special day. That was fantastic. I, I loved my years at Mary I, and Ma'am loved her years as well. Although, of course, it was a very different Mary I when she was there. Um, they, they could only go out of the college once, one afternoon a week, I think Sunday afternoon. So she said they'd always be at the gate putting on their lipstick because they weren't allowed to have it in, in the college and then going downtown for their few hours of freedom. Yeah. Now, of course, it was so different when I was there. Although when I was there, we had no students union. There were still a lot of nuns on the teaching staff. So it was really, it was more a kind of a halfway house between secondary school and college. It wasn't a college as we know it now. It was really, uh, you know, kind of an extended secondary school. Now, it was very good, I thought, and we got great training there. And we had plenty of teaching practice and some great lecturers. And uh, yeah, I felt, I felt confident about going into a classroom when I came out of there after the three years. But yeah, in 2019, I got a very pleasant email from Eugene Wall, who was the then and the still president of Mary I, to say that they, he had started this um, alumni awards a few years previously, and he awarded two each year to alumni who had done something different when they had left Mary I and kind of got a bit of, you know, notoriety or fame or whatever you want to call it to themselves. And he was going to, he picked me and Pat McDonough of Supermax to uh, award the, the alumni. So he said, bring somebody along. And I said, please, can I bring my mother? Because she also went to Mary I. So we went along with a lovely dinner beforehand with myself, ma'am, Eugene, a few other people from the college. And then we went to the, the hall that I remember as well. And we had the ceremony and it was just, it was really, really a lovely night. And I got a gorgeous medal from it. And they surprised ma'am. I was so touched at this. They surprised her with a bouquet of flowers and a kind of certificate all for herself as well. She, was, <laughs> she wasn't expecting, I didn't know it was going to happen. So it was, it was lovely. At what point did Rose actually accept that this was the path you were going down? You were saying, you know, have faith in me when you left teaching finally. Yes, yes. At what point did ma'am decide, <laughs> yes, she's done the right thing? Well, I'm not sure because I don't know if we ever have that conversation. But I suppose as the years went on and the books kept coming, she probably relaxed at some stage. Yeah. And now dad was still there. I mean, he only left us in 2022. He was nearly 96 when he when he died. So there's good innings in, in, in the family. Yeah. But yeah, both of them, I think, decided that I was safe enough, really. I was safe enough after probably book eight or ten, maybe. What would you say to a young person thinking of taking up a career in writing? For somebody who would maybe in two minds about writing, what would you say to them? Well, yeah, I've often, I'm often asked that question and I, I, I'm hesitant, really, like I always am when I get asked that, because I, I feel there's a lot of responsibility going along with the answer. First, I would say find time. If you really want to write, find time in your day. Roddy Doyle, I heard, I don't know if this is true, but I'd say it probably is. When he was writing Paddy Clark, ha ha ha, he had a full-time teaching job. He also had two children under two or three at home. So he found the time and that book went on to win the booker. So if he could do that, people, if they really want to write, they'll find the time. If it's only an hour in the morning before your family gets up or an hour at nighttime when they're all gone to bed, 
find the time and just stick with it. Like you just have to stick with it and you have to keep doing it until it gets there. People fall by the wayside. They lose interest or life gets in the way or something. Don't let it if you really want to see a book with your name in it. Keep going to the end and then just keep knocking on doors. It's not easy. I was very lucky to win that two book deal. I, I Every day I think how lucky I was, but you just have to keep at it. And I would say as well, a course, a writing course, could be great to kickstart your process or joining a writing group. I was never in a writing group, but I believe they're brilliant and I know lots of people in them and I know lots of writers who've come out of them. So I would say find a writing group if you can in your area or there could be ones online now and that would give you the support maybe that you might need as well. But just stick with it. And then I would say if you get that as far as having a first draft done, Look for an agent because a lot of publishers now won't accept unsolicited manuscript. Just keep at it and be a reader. Be a Very reader. important. Yeah. How many books published? I think the 21st was the last one I published and this is number 22. 22. And yeah. what does the future hold? The future holds hopefully a lot more books. I, I don't feel that I have to give up yet. I feel I have plenty of brain power, hopefully still left in me. My mother's as sharp as a tack. I just hope I keep going like she's going. And yeah, I intend being a writer until they take the laptop out of my cold dead hands, <laughs> basically. <laughs>